Hello, and welcome to the Dialogue on Dialogue podcast. I am your host, Philip Recheck. In this podcast, I am seeking to share some of the interesting thoughts and ideas of people in my own locale. And in the grandiose style of grandiose introductions, I hope to make the world a better place, one conversation at a time. Today, which is my first ever podcast, I sat down with Pete Myers, and he and I had a great discussion over a couple beers at the Lazy Monk in Eau Claire, and we talked about many things, including how he came to be a professor, and how he got to be such a devoted Cub fan, as well as his specialty, which is the life and times of Frederick Douglass. We also had a good talk about how that relates to our current state of affairs in the world. So I hope you enjoy this first recording from a good friend and local hero, Pete Myers. All right, I am here today with Pete Myers, a political scientist, author, and all-around smart guy. Pete, thank you for coming today. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> All right, well, why don't we start at the beginning, because as you know, I'm into the world of play and children and childhood. Uh, I know that you're a big Cubs fan, and you've mentioned that you played a lot of basketball as a child, but were you always a Cub fan, and were you one of the kids out playing stickball in the street as a child? No and yes. All right. Um, I played some stickball. Not, I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of a suburban upbringing. So we played ball. We played ball in a field across the street from my house. But I played a little bit of stickball. One of my friends had a kid who who lives sort of in the more inner city part of Peoria. So I played a little bit of stickball. No, I was not a Cubs fan. I was a St. Louis Cardinals fan oh. growing up in Peoria, mm -hmm. which was pretty much smack in between Chicago and St. Louis. And uh, and I listened to I listened to Harry Carey and Jack Buck when I was a kid doing Cardinals games. Yep. And I became a Cub fan when I lived in Chicago as a grad student. Because the Cubs actually finally won something. In 19, <laughs> 1984, they won their division, and they were good, and they should have gone to the World Series, where they would have gotten demolished by the Tigers. But it would have been the Cubs in the World Series, and they got up 2 to nothing against the Padres. They pounded the Padres twice in Wrigley. One of the games was, I'm sure this is true, I remember this well, where the, the first game was like 13 to nothing, and they won, and everybody's thinking, you know. Right. Uh, this is the year. And then they the went curse. out to San Diego and they lost three in a row. <laughs> and, and if I remember right, the team actually didn't come back at that point. They just decided to stay, all move up yeah, to San Diego. Really. And, and I remember, and, well, and, and yeah, and the first baseman was a guy named Leon Durham who did kind of a Bill Buckner at a crucial <laughs> moment in the game. The, you know, the ball skipped over his glove, two-run score, boom, you're done. And... Uh, and the, the, the city of Chicago was an absolute mourning. I mean, people stayed home from work the next day because they, they lost the whole series on yep. Sunday. So on that Monday, nobody went to work. And, <laughs> and so it's all over the news. You know, they're, they're sending reporters out to bars to right. interview Cubs fans. And this crusty old guy on, uh, on, on one of the news shows, is, you know, he's, he's got, I don't know what kind of drink in hand, but I'm sure it wasn't the first one. He's right. like, ah, you know. 
they wouldn't be the Cubs if they didn't break your heart, you know. And said, All right, that's right. The Cubs broke my heart, so I'm a Cubs fan forever. So. Right, you're stuck. And I live to see the yep. Cubs be the champions of the world. So. Right, that's uh, surprised the city just didn't, you know, dissolve them. Like government just Even dissolved. Though, yeah, I was in Washington, and they they broke the the Nats' hearts uh, partly mm-hmm. when they did that, but. Uh, do you remember the first game or one of the first games that you went to as a kid? The, those were in Bush Stadium, yeah. Okay. I, saw, I, I think we went to, it was the year when Lou Brock stole whatever he stole. Oh, the 118 yeah. bases or something. Yep. He, broke the, he broke the stolen base record. Um, and uh, yeah, I went to, we went to a couple of games. Those were birthday presents in those days yeah. when I was like around 13 or yep. so. We would drive down to St. Louis and see Cardinals games. That yeah. was that was cool. That was yeah. fun. I remember uh, my first games were the, the Twins at the Metrodome, and I grew up in the area like '87 and '92 yeah. when yeah. they had the '87 and '91. '91, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kirby Puckett years. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, who went to Bradley in Peoria, by the way? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, very he cool. was a Chicago one, I think, growing up. But okay. Yeah, he went to he played college ball in Peoria. Oh, very cool. Uh, but. I remember, like they used to have the, you know, twins. Twins fans are the all Minnesota fans are the most fickle fans yeah, you can yeah. ever imagine. So they always had to do the, especially the Metrodome, the Homer Dome. But you you would do the like it had to be like five bucks days at at the stadium. You know, you'd have those games where you pay five bucks, you go in, and you get a ticket to the game, and. You basically have the whole run of the upper level. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> yes, just... yes. I, I, I have experiences my, my grad school days at Wrigley like that. Ah. The Cubs would be, this is, this is early yeah. 80s, Cubs were awful. You know? So you go there right. in September, there are 30 games out. <laughs> right. you know, there's no one there, you know, the park seats 40,000, there's maybe 5,000 people there. Yeah. And so you've got your own personal beer vendor in the bleachers. You, know, and, and you go there for three bucks, you get a bleacher seat. And, it was, and the outfielders could hear the things you said to them. And sometimes they would respond. It was, it was really fun. <laughs> and now I can't even imagine that now because I have to think that I mean, yeah, they just came off a World Series, but, like, even when I, you know, 90s, when I was in college, the Cubs games were, like, you could barely get a ticket yeah. in, under yeah. any circumstances, yeah. no matter how, it yeah. almost got to be, people wanted to see it because they were bad at that point. Yeah, yeah. It didn't matter. Well, that was the bad thing about it, though. They were, every once in a while, after 84, they became, um, well, I mean, Wrigley sort of gentrified, and the Cubs became yeah. a fashion in town. Right. And then it became hard to get tickets, and then the prices started going up. Yeah. And every once in a while, they'd win. Like, they won, they won the division in 89, yeah, and they won it Brian again in 93. Uh, yeah. And so they were, every once in a while, they were actually good. Make it a run. It wasn't like get the people's old, hopes the old up. days. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the 84 team was the one that really was, that was a fun team over the course of the summer. Yeah. But... Uh, didn't have a happy ending. <laughs> now, I remember w- watching those Twins series. The Twins were, I mean, who knows whether they were any actually any good. Because yeah. in the regular season, they didn't have a great record. Right. But boy, were they unbeatable. I mean, the, the Metrodome was so loud. Yeah. They were unbeatable in yeah. the Metrodome. Yeah, it was pretty cool to be, you know, right in the prime of it. And that was, uh, let me think. Herbeck was, I yep. remember, Herbeck, I don't remember too many guys on the team. Jack Morris yep. was a pitcher in only 91? 91, 91 yeah. yeah. But yeah. then, like, um, 
Oh, Joe Necro? Was he? No, not Necro. Um, trying to remember. Yeah, Juan Berenger. Juan Berenger. Yeah, that's right. Senior that's Smoke, right. as he was called. That's right. That's <laughs> right. I remember him. Uh, he was one of their closers. Yeah, Reardon. Um, and was was Bert Bert Blylevin. Yeah, Blylevin. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't remember if he Molitor, retired. Yeah, was Molitor for the ninety-one later years was on one of those teams. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they and they uh, they had some exciting series too. That yeah, like. Uh, uh, Herbeck's Ken Herbeck's home Grand Slam. I think it was like Game Five or Six. Uh, I can go back and correct this later yeah, if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah I don't that, remember. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I should remember that. I don't remember that. I remember the Kirby Puckett home run. Yeah, uh, which everybody remembers. But, um. So you grew up in Peoria, then you went to Northwestern. For undergrad, and then I went to Illinois State. Illinois State first. Okay. I went to Illinois State for two years, which actually is a place a lot like UW Eau Claire. It's a, it's bigger, but uh, uh, but normal Illinois is the, <laughs> if you want to go get a postcard, it is great to be back to normal. Right. You know, that's where you go. But anyway, uh, um, that's forty five minutes from home. And, okay. And uh, it was an old teachers college that became you know a state institution. Okay. And, uh, um, it was like 20,000 undergraduates or something, but it was, otherwise it was a lot like UW okay. actually, except not nearly as pretty in the, you know, in the, the geography around it. Um, so I went there for two years because I didn't, coming out of high school, I didn't have any interest really in being, in being academically serious. Uh, I went to college because that's just kind of yep. what you did, yep. and I had no idea really what I wanted to major in. I declared a business major because, you know, what the hell, I figured you had, right. to, you had yeah. to work after yeah. you got yeah. out. Grow up. And, and within like a week, I mean seriously, within a week I knew I wanted to be a college professor. Oh, cool. I, I didn't know what I wanted to study. Was it a particular professor that inspired you? It was or a couple or of was them. it like, yeah. what, you guys get your summers off still? That was the. <laughs> <laughs> hey, these guys got a pretty soft life. <laughs> no, I thought they were smart. I mean, okay. I had a couple high school teachers who I respected, but most of them I didn't. Really. Right. You know, you're a high school right. kid, you think everybody's stupid. And they're, they're, but, but the college professors I did not think were stupid. Yeah. A, a couple of them I thought were really smart, and I, and I thought, you know. If I work at this, I could do that. Right. Um, but maybe I should maybe I should work at it. So that's how that started. So then, once once that decision was made, then it was pretty clear that I wasn't really going to finish at ISU. That okay. I was going to go someplace else. So I went to so I went to Northwestern, which in some respects was a great decision, and in some respects not, because the guy, as it turns out, the guy who teaches political thought or taught political thought at Illinois State was actually much better than the guy who taught it at Northwestern. Oh, really? I mean, everything else at Northwestern was better, probably, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah. That had to be a pretty big... You know, I'm, I, without knowing, uh, Illinois State was probably a more blue-collar type of school, or...? Well, kind of, yeah. It was a lot of kids from... Uh, there, there were a lot of Chicago-area kids. Um, the, a lot of kids from, like, suburban Chicago. Okay. But otherwise, yeah, kids from downstate, kids from yeah. farming communities, kids from, you know, kids from, mostly from Illinois. I don't remember a lot okay. of kids from any other. But any other then moving to Northwestern, which is kind of bigger campus, it's kind of the, 
one yeah. of the elite Midwestern yeah. schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Northwestern was full of East Coast kids. Yeah. Who, some of whom, I mean, a lot, I, I thought everybody there was smart. Um, some kids I thought were snotty and arrogant. Sure. Some kids were really, were, were nice kids. But I was only there two years. I, okay. I made a few really close friends there. I didn't make a okay. ton of friends. My, my best friends from college are, actually there's a, a, a woman who besides Paige is my, one of my best friends in life. Um, grew up in Bloomington and went to Illinois State and transferred to Northwestern at the same time oh, I okay. did. And we both, unbeknownst to each other, and we became very close friends cool. and still are. Um, and, uh, and there's another guy who's an opera singer from, from Virginia, uh, completely kick guy who wound up living next door to me. So, and he was a very good basketball player. Uh, in fact, he was the, no, West Virginia, is that right? Uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, Virginia, anyway. He was the he was the fastest white kid in the state his, uh, his senior year. He ran like a nine seven hundred yard dash or something. Did you get a T-shirt or something? You like know, that? yeah. And he was a complete <laughs> hick when you listen to him talk. And he was an opera singer. He was, he was this really smart, cultivated guy. So he oh, was he, he was a friend. Yeah. Um, so those are my friends at Northwestern. All right. Other than that, my, my my college friends are still my ISU and then friends. and then did you go directly from. Uh, graduates or sorry undergrad yeah. into graduate school yeah at, yeah I went from Northwestern to Loyola okay um, and uh, I was admitted to the University of Chicago and I decided not to go because um, I because I had heard bad things about the U of Chicago which was I think a dumb decision now I, I really regret that decision although Paige doesn't like it when I say that because if I made a different right. decision I would have got a different academic yep. job and you know, yep. your whole life yep. would be different yep um, so you know you can't regret that in that way, but right. I would I would have learned a lot more. I would have come out a whole lot better connected. Um, yeah. But at that time, I didn't want to be anybody's student, you know. And, and Loyola had younger faculty who were very and and the the bad thing that probably had a kernel of truth in it about Chicago was that I heard that you. You know, you became a grad student there and you got lost and you oh, spent sure. 15 years there before you ever, right. you know, finished your PhD if you right. ever did. Yep. And Loyola was a new program and they were, they were interested, they wanted people to okay. finish and get on yep. the market yep. and, and have some success. Yep. So that was, that was appealing to me. So, you know, and I was happy at Loyola. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was a good place. And now, <clears throat> you uh, are one of the world's foremost Frederick Douglass scholars. <laughs> Universe's <laughs> foremost Frederick Douglass. But, but it's a what, small field of competition, <laughs> I think. But. But, but with that said, that would be, you know, that seems to be a historical major as opposed to political science. Like, yeah. Where, yeah. Does, where does that lie or how, does, how did that come about yeah, that's within good, the world of political that's, science? That's a good question. Um, the, the, my, my dissertation was on John Locke. Okay. My dissertation is a is a dense, pretty philosophical. I don't want to read it. No, no one, no <laughs> one does. No one would. You know, um, I mean, probably ten people in the country have read my. And more than that, I think, but not tons more than that. And your graduate um, advisor isn't one of them. No. So anyway, I thought after I did that, I thought I want to do something next, a little more down to earth, uh -huh. and I want to trace. Locke's ideas to how they've played out in American politics. And that gives you a couple of, really only a couple alternatives. You can, you can write something about the founding, which at the time kind of bored me, honestly. Yep. Uh, 
Or you could write something about the Civil War, which mm -hmm. did not bore me. I've always loved that. And if you're going to write about the Civil War, the figures I wanted to write about were either Lincoln or Frederick Douglass. Right. And in regard to Lincoln, you know, the, I mean, how many books are there about Lincoln? Exactly. You know, I, yeah. where, where is it? We were in Washington um, going through the Doing the Ford's Theater tour yeah. and then across the street to the place where, um, where Lincoln actually died. But there's this stairwell that they've got. Um, I forgot how they did it, but they, they, they found a way to make into this kind of winding post that surrounds the stairwell all of the books written about Lincoln, you know, and it goes down for like three floors, you know, these books just embedded in here. Do they just um, keep adding on floors because every year it doesn't well, more come yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know that. Or maybe they toss out, you know, some of the ones right. that get old or something. But um, so I, I, but I think I learned the wrong lesson from that. I thought, I mean, the lesson I learned was that you couldn't possibly say anything original or interesting mm. about Lincoln sure. because everything's already been said. So don't write about Lincoln. Um, but the other way to look at that is that <laughs> there's so many books about Lincoln. There's a reason for that. People right. never get tired of reading right. about Lincoln, so there's always a market for that. Right. So I don't know, but I'm. But I, I read. I, I I read a couple of Frederick Douglass's autobiographies, and I thought, wow, you know, there's there's a lot here that yeah. I can I can make something of this because uh, he's really smart, and yeah. I I continue to think that. I think I think Frederick Douglass was. Well, yeah, I think Fre I, Frederick Douglass was the greatest of all civil rights leaders and the greatest of all abolitionists in American politics. And I tell mm -hmm. that to American political thought classes, waiting for them to say, but, 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 you know, what about Martin, <laughs> what about Martin Luther King, you know? W. Du Bois. Well, no, yeah. I mean, Du Bois was smart, but Du Bois was a little bit nutty. Um, and uh, Booker T. Washington, I think, is very, very smart and underrated. But, uh, but Douglass, there's a power about his mind that's, that's really astounding. And the same is true of Lincoln. Um, but uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I, that's, what, that's what got me into Frederick Douglass. I think Frederick Douglass really is, is one of the great American Lockeans. I think there is kind of a nice progression between, between Locke and Douglass. Um, and did he, did he study Locke, or was it he naturally came he, to some of these ideas? I've never come across any direct evidence that he owned Locke's book, and he never mentions actually reading Locke. But he either, either he encountered Locke's ideas just atmospherically through his abolitionist friends, mm -hmm. or he actually did read Locke. Because, okay. you know, not only does, are his ideas, um, do they run along the same tracks, he uses Locke's language at times. But do you think he, could he, have, I mean, he studied the, founder, the founders so heavily, could he have worked backward from founding documents? I mean, yeah, possibly. Like, I, possibly. I would think that would be another option. But yeah, he, he read a lot of history. He read a lot of poetry. He was he was really, he must have been just an absolutely exceptional mind because yeah he had no education. Lincoln was like that too, um, except Douglas even to a greater extent. He had he had zero formal education. Yeah, um, and. And he didn't escape slavery. You know, it was against the law to teach him to read. He learned right. to read anyway. But, but he escapes when he's 20. And by the time he's, what was it, 29, he's, um, he's launching his own newspaper. He's becoming a newspaper editor. And, and can you, know? you I've, I've had this thought, you know, when you look back at history and people, the remarkable things that people have done, 
how they're doing all of this in an era where they had to basically kill, clean, like yeah. the amount of yeah. like it, without any technology, yeah. like yeah. they own half a dozen books and yeah. borrow from yeah. around friends, but how, yeah. how you just get, you produce at that. Yeah, uh, well, and he was on the road all the time speaking. Yeah. He was writing speeches and giving speeches all the time, still trying to edit this newspaper, which never made any money, so right. he's trying to raise money for it, and writing editorials, um, and it was a weekly, you know, and he's, he's, writing, he's writing editorials, um, and, and finding time to read, and he right. complained about being a slow reader, but, but he, his, he, his mind just had some kind of absorptive capacity that some people don't need to read a lot and they learn tons from it and he must have been like that but he he read pretty widely i think too. so did he was he also like a pressman did he did he do the physical you know putting the plates together and i'm not sure about that okay he, he might have he had some he had some help editorially for a while but um, but I'm not really sure okay. who did the physical work. I don't think he had the money to employ much of anybody, and he never mentions help like that. And when he would go, be going around speaking at all these different engagements, was it by invitation or by necessity that he was on the road, like trying to get money and trying to like kind of both? He okay. was he was working for William Lloyd Garrison. Okay, and, you know which That's right. his own. His anti-slavery organization raises money so they can hire speakers, so they can go talk to pretty much whoever will okay. listen to them. Um, but a lot of times, you know, he doesn't have any place to stay because right. he's black. A lot right. of times, you know, he, he finds himself confronting a mob that doesn't like abolitionism, and and it was a dangerous life. It was right. a difficult life he had, and he's right. got kids in there. He's got a wife and kids at home. Well, and for so much of it pre-Civil War, he also ran the risk that somebody would kidnap him and yeah. would try to return yeah. him yeah. to... Yeah, because, yeah, between, um, let's see, he, he escaped in, in 1838, and he became legally free only in 1847. Mm -hmm. So for most of those years, he, um, he's a fugitive, you know, and so he has to be careful what it, this is a good part of the story, actually. I don't know if you wanted to talk as much about Frederick Duck. Yeah, it's um, good. This is a good part of the story. And this is in his. Would, would this be something that would come out in his second autobiography, or like you know, I know that there he has his three autobiographies. Like, yeah. Where does this part of the narrative fall within? Let me think about that. How much he says about that. Well, this part that I was about to say is, is in all of them. Okay. Because it doesn't really endanger any any secrets that he wanted to keep. Um, the, the thing is that he was a fugitive um, and Garrison is just kind of knocked out by, by how effective he was and could be as a speaker. So Garrison employs him, but he's so good at it that people start to say, okay, this is a fraud, you know, because mm -hmm. this guy couldn't possibly have been a slave till he was 20, because sure. he couldn't possibly speak Take this well, on. know this much, he couldn't be this good. And, uh, and Douglas was a fugitive, so he couldn't say exactly right. where he'd been. Um, 
and, uh, and so he finally decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut you up. I'm going to write this autobiography, and I'm going to name names, and I'm going to tell you exactly where I was born and exactly. And he had a remarkable memory. I mean, the historians have kind of tracked him down on things he says, and they find evidence for the things that he, the, the, the memories that he has uh, of events on, um, on slave plantations. And, and um, so when he did that, that was um, early 1845, the first one got published. So then he names names, and then he becomes really a marked man. Right. Um, so he went to England. He, he fled to England right after that. And he stayed in England for like a year and a half. And he, you know, he, and he makes friends with the English abolitionists, and, he, and, he gives a, and, he's, and he's on speaking tour, and he's really kind of a celebrity in okay. England. Uh, and his English friends bought his freedom. Okay. So they gave him the money to purchase his freedom from his from the guy who owned him. Could he purchase his own freedom, or did he yeah. have to have somebody purchase his freedom for him? No, he could do it if he okay. if he'd raised enough money. Yeah, he could. Okay. He could have. I mean, it's just it would have been just a matter of contract between him and and Hugh Walden. Okay. So if the if the slaveholder would have agreed to it, he, some slaves did that. Okay. It's remarkable. Uh, so I watched your. 200th anniversary meeting on online yeah. on YouTube um, my heritage buddies with your heritage buddies yeah and I really liked for all of the speakers who were on that uh, well I'll have you go ahead and just say where that is for both of the people who will listen to this and, and not know about <laughs> it uh, but um, can you just talk about or can you just say a little bit about like what you had said there or even even more thoughts you've had on how Frederick Douglass is modern day relevant, you know, the relevancy yeah, of I him in modern times. I mean, and there's a lot to say about that in the sense that Douglas is a, um, Douglas is a proponent of kind of complete, total, thorough racial integration. I mean, at the domestic level as well as the political level. And that, that, I, that seems to me a, a, a very relevant teaching. And Douglas is a, a really forthright defender of of founding principles, mm -hmm. which is more controversial now among people who are anti-racist, and and uh, so that I think is very valuable. But there's a there's a there, in some sense, if you could get people to listen, I mean, the the, the most relevant, most useful part of his story um, would be what Douglas has to say, what his example has to say. Um, to, to young black kids, especially black boys, mm -hmm. you know, who grow up pretty much hopeless, and the country's against them. I got no hope. I, you know, I'm completely yeah. alienated. I, you know, I, I, I got no prospects here, so I'm just tuned out of mm -hmm. the whole society. And Douglas was like that. I mean, he grew up enslaved, and then after he was free, he became really kind of radically anti-American for about ten years. And he, and he learned to love the country. He found his place in it. It's, it's really inspiring when you think about that. Would that be, now, just so I understand the history of it, would the anti-American kind of slant on it all, would that be part of the Garrisonian yes. approach yes. to it all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that was kind of a returning... Uh, the African slaves back to Africa was the original kind of, or one of the opponents of, oppo or proponents of that. Yeah, for them it was worse than that, but that was part of what okay. they, that was part of what they didn't like. Um, the The simple way to put the Garrisonians is to say that they they loved the Declaration of Independence and they hated the Constitution. Okay, they thought the Constitution 
and, and, and versions of this survive among a lot of actually historians and political scientists who think that the Constitution was a kind of turn away from the, 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 the morality of the Declaration. Hmm. But, um, but they thought the Constitution was a corrupt compromise with slavery. They thought the Constitution was a pro-slavery document, and Douglas right. agreed with that. He didn't really have any any alternative way of thinking about it for about um, it would have been close to ten years. Okay. I guess he was a he was a Garrisonian, but the inference that the Garrisonians drew from the the idea that um, the Constitution was pro-slavery, um, but um, but anyway, the the thing is that the. The Garrisonians inferred from the pro-slavery constitution that, that a morally upright person couldn't participate at all in American politics because to do so would be to imply that you somehow supported the constitution, so you granted, you conceded its legitimacy. It. Yeah. So they didn't vote and they advocated secession. You know, so that, that's what I mean when I say they were, in, in serious ways, they were kind of radically anti They were Texans at that point then, weren't almost, they? Almost, <laughs> yeah, yeah, almost. Um, <laughs> a little less martial than Texans. Right. Um, but otherwise, yeah, they, they, they thought that the free states should secede from the Union. And, okay. and uh, Douglas initially thought that and then came to think, well, that's complete nonsense. Why, mm -hmm. why would we do that? Right. You know, it's hard enough to convince people to be anti-slavery. You want to convince them to be anti-slavery and anti-American right. and anti-founding fathers all at the same time. We can't possibly win that. Right. So that, that turned him around some. But uh, um, yeah, that was the story with Douglas and, uh, uh, and the Garrisonians. But back to the disenchanted youth of today. Um, that there's there are still several lessons that could be yeah. learned from yeah. Yeah. how he went about. Uh, yeah. Well, one is uh, <laughs> Diane. I credit Diane Schaub, who you haven't met, which is too bad um, for for this point. Um, she said this one time in print. It struck me as very smart. Um, that Douglas tells this great story in one of his autobiographies that. Um, it's the story when he's talking about his literacy. Mm -hmm. He starts to learn how to read because he winds up in the household of, it turned out the, the brother actually of the guy who actually owned him, but mm -hmm. the guy who owned him sort of lent him out to his brother to be a house slave. And I think by the way he did that because he and his wife saw that this kid was gifted. Okay. They, they didn't want him to be a plantation slave. Douglas never admits that. But except kind of in between the lines, he sort of suggests okay. that this is probably what happened. Anyway, so he goes to this household in Baltimore, and he becomes a house slave, and he was there pretty much to be kind of the caretaker of this, the younger son, little boy. Okay. Um, and so he observes the mom teaching the little boy how to read, you know, which, yep. we, which meant yep. how to read the which Bible. So little Frederick asks, um, can you teach me to read? She says, sure. She grew up in the South, but in, a, in Maryland, sort of okay. the South, but in a household that didn't have slaves. Okay. So she didn't, wasn't really, and she was right. young, and so she wasn't really all that acculturated in slavery. So she says, sure. And so she teaches him how to read. She finds, or, or starts to, she finds him to be an apt student. Yeah. 
And she brags about it to her husband. Oh, you know, I'm uh, doing this with little Fred, and you yeah. know, he's coming along really well. And he looks at her, you know, serious. Right. And, you know, you know, and, and what he said to her was, well, you can't do that because if you teach him how to read, then he, he won't be fit to be a slave anymore. And he said that in front of Frederick. Mm. And so, you know, the, the adult Douglas writing light, light this. Light bulb goes on. Yeah, it says, you know, okay, my reaction is that this is like a revelation. Oh, right. okay, this is right. how I get not to be a slave. I learned to read. So he, I mean, and, and the, the hook is, this is the thought that Diana comes up with. Douglas, Douglas um, conceived this, this really burning desire to read, to mm -hmm. educate himself. And so he wound up, you know, they, the, the husband forbade any further instruction. So he didn't get any further lessons from right. the wife. But he was hanging around with white kids who were in school. Mm -hmm. And so he would find ways of kind of tricking right. them. You know, I bet I can make this letter better than you. He knew like four or five letters in the alphabet. So he'd draw one. I can, I can write letters better than you. And then the other kids would say, well, no, you can't. And they'd write other letters. And so he'd learn the other letters. Yeah. And he'd, he'd pick up scraps of books and he'd taught himself to read wow. the rest of the way. Um, but the thing is, you know, he, he learned that because of the opposition. He thought, okay, you know, what I don't want to be is a slave. They're forbidding me to read. And that's why I know it's good because they're forbidding it. Right. Um, and her thought, Diana's thought was, you know, imagine that now, like we're yeah. pushing kids to read, and right. so we're the adult authorities right. Right. saying you have to do this. Imagine if we were the adult authorities saying you can't read. I yeah. forbid it. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> you said one time you were a master in reverse psychology, right? That, that would be, I mean, imagine that. Yeah. Um, that, that was Douglas's experience. Like, the grown-ups don't want me to do this, so I'm damn well going to do it. Yeah. Except the grown-ups are slaveholders. I don't know if that's going to fly many school board, fly across many school Probably boards. Probably not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forbid your kids to read, and guess what? They're going to be, you know, they're going to be at, up at night under the covers with books. Well, I used to catch Edie doing that. Yeah, I think I, I did too as well. You know, and I never, never, Paige would get upset because she, you know, she's got to go to sleep and think, okay, no, if she's going to do that. But maybe I'm the best thing you could have been doing is been, Edie, this is your father maybe, speaking. Maybe, maybe that's right. Right. Yeah, I, uh, yeah maybe that's, maybe I that forbid you right. to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe no, that's uh, right. I, I do think though, I don't know, with, at least with our kids, like that reverse psychology would have backfired on us somehow big time. <laughs> like they would have out, they would have seen it coming, outsmarted us. They, they figure out what you're <laughs> right. doing. You know? yeah. No, I. Uh, um, okay, so we'll move on here. Uh, I gotta get, I gotta pick up a kid from a thing, as I usually do here soon enough. So you spent a year out in D.C. working for the Heritage Foundation. Uh, just a couple little like things that I was love to hear your opinion on would be. You would probably be what you'd probably consider yourself conservative-ish. What to what to a friendly to, right to exactly. a friendly interlocutor? I would admit right. That, but what yeah. what do you see that term as meaning? You know, I mean, I you know yeah. people banter banter about the classic liberal or yeah. you know yeah. Um, yeah it means something different in America from what it means right. in Europe. Um, but what what do you, what in terms of and and I think that. Correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure that there's a spectrum, but uh, the Heritage Foundation, at least your work within that organization was focused on a conservatism yeah. 
yeah. that within the within the confines of whatever it is that you're going to define. Yeah, pretty for much me. the whole house is. I mean, there, there are disagreements in house as right. to what exactly the place ought to stand for. But you know, I mean, first of all, just think of the name. It's the yeah. Heritage Foundation. Right. It's a, it's devoted to the preservation of American heritage, based on the idea that they think that the American heritage is endangered by people departing from it. And American heritage means. It, well, especially in my office, in the I mean, the office I worked in, it it, it meant preservation of the founding principles. Right. So it, it meant originalist understanding of the Constitution. It meant uh, that your basic organizing principles derive from the Declaration of Independence. You use the term classical liberal, which is a good enough summation, I think, of what American conservatism. That, at least that's the kind of conservatism that persuades me. That's right. why I would call myself one, you know, natural rights, limited government, constitutional government. Freedom um, of speech. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, speech over uh, equalization, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, with a certain, you know, this, this, this you got to specify, but, you know, a certain, a certain moral traditionalism as, mm -hmm. as, a, as conditions for being a rights exercising human being. Right. Um, yeah, that to me is what is what conservatism means. Do you, you know, because, but do you feel that the current university system? I guess I guess you have to hide your conservatism within the university. Do you feel like you have to not be or keep quiet or I guess that's not even the best way to say it. But do you feel like? Um, you are one man against an army, essentially, often within the, yeah, the those world. Are, those are several questions. Do I feel like, do I, on the last question, do I feel like it's me against the whole rest of the university, <laughs> more or less, you know, April accepted, a couple others accepted? Yeah, I do. Okay. I mean, I really do. And, it, and it, it's, it's kind of burdensome, because it seems like, um, it, it, you know, you have to respond to I have to figure out a way intelligently to respond to all of the nonsense on all of the subject right. matters that right. other people claim, you know, a partial expertise in, and it's hard. I mean, it's too hard. I can't. I can't do it. Um, but do I have to hide? I I did hide when I was pre-tenured, uh, and and I don't know if I really had to, but I. It seemed to me smart at the time. I had. All of my colleagues always have been have been Democrats and left leaning. That's there's never been another uh, another conservative or anybody on the right hand side of the fence in the political science department since I've been there. Apparently, there was a guy who was a Republican, <laughs> you know, before I came. But he was. That and sounds, he was the only that sounds like the story. I have this. I, I heard of this friend of a friend who at yeah. one time yeah. was in the department. That yeah. He yeah. was just adjunct professor for a couple years, but yeah. yeah. That said, <laughs> you know, about half my colleagues, maybe even more, I regarded as genuine liberals in the sense that they were they were tolerant and they right. accepted differences yeah. of opinion and they wouldn't have persecuted me. Uh, there were a few, two or three others I wasn't sure about that. Okay, and so I thought it was better to lie low. Um, I, I think that for a different reason too. I mean, I, th I think that even if I didn't have to, I would probably hide a bit. I'm kind of in two minds about this now, because I think I teach better if students don't know what I think, right. how I vote. Because uh, I think when they know that, they're a little bit 
for both in both directions, they're inclined to take you less seriously. Right. They presume either they agree or they disagree with right. you, but they don't think about what you're saying. If they can't figure me out, that makes them think. So right. I, I try hard not to uh, not to convey that in class. But on the other hand, um, you know, you have students, and you hear about it from time to time, who themselves feel. Um, disrespected and worse, intimidated by professors, bullied by professors for for not accepting the, the, the party line and uh, and they need support. Right. So you know you so to them I feel like I should speak a little more freely to let them know right. that no, you know, you you've got friends around here if you right. were to look. Yeah, and then you think about I mean assuming most kids don't come into college with their political ideology uh, and that's really what college is about, is exposing you to ideas that make you think. Right. But, I mean, if we look at the last 40 years of elections, half of them are coming from cons <coughs> what would be, I guess, I don't even, I don't even necessarily always like to relate republicanism to conservatism and Democrats to liberalism, yeah. Yeah. but, but the, half of them are coming from what would be Republican and half of them are coming from what would be Democratic households. Just more or less, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so, uh, and, and I think both of these groups should have their views challenged uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. at some level, yeah. or at least make people think outside of what they've been accustomed to. I, I almost think that everybody should work on a political campaign of the other side at some point, just to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, even, even interestingly enough, you saw on that... Um, on that webcast, yeah. Dave, my friend David Azrad, who introduced us, mm -hmm. you know, um, David gives talks to the interns who are college kids. We all do, but mostly it's him and another guy who run our office. There are like a hundred interns working at Heritage, right. you know, and they're college kids, and uh, and our office was in charge of giving them. They're called first principles lectures. And so every Wednesday, you know, at a lunchtime yeah. lecture, you talk to them about this or that subject matter, explaining conservative ideas to them. And David always used to tell them, "You should have left-wing friends. You should, should, you should seek them out. You should, you should learn what they think. You should, you should take it as a goal to be able to state their arguments at least as well right. or better than they can right. than they can state their own arguments." Right. And I think that's exactly right. Right. And I, yeah, and that's a term like. What is it? Steel manning someone else's argument. Basically, me stating someone my the opposing view's argument in the best light possible, mm -hmm. in the uh, most generous light possible. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to avoid a lot of uh, ill will. I, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and and I don't know if this is true of the just common lot of people who vote in a conservative direction, but it, it certainly is true of conservative intellectuals that um, the. We we know what the other side thinks much mm -hmm. better than they know what we think. Yeah, because we're just we're aliens to them. Right, and and, and they're not surrounded by us. We're right. surrounded by them. We have to deal with them. Right, and and they think that. I, I find this is commonly true. Really, you talk to left wing people, they have the most the most cartoonish ideas about what conservatives think. Uh, right, because they've never encountered any real conservatives or, or taken them seriously enough yep. to have a conversation with them. Well, and I think, uh, you know, not that I mean, don't want to get into politics too much here, but I had a realization. April and I have been talking about this a little bit, but this idea that all these, a lot of these people who voted for, say, Trump, 
uh, wanted, were just disenchanted people who wanted to break things. That, yeah. They, yeah. that they were just felt, basically, nobody's listening to me, yeah. and I want to break things. And, and at least that acknowledgement that, like, wow, you know, like, this is the world we live in, that that many people, uh, you know, vote because of just almost disenchantment, you know, yeah. for lack of, yeah. or, or finally yeah. there's somebody who uh, sees the problems in, in, the, in the same light I would do. They're not voting on uh, theoretical or philosophical principles by any, ma any way or, or. No, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out right now. I, did I tell you this? That, that David Jones is organizing this. He's doing this course in the honors program called okay. Politics and Culture in the Age of Trump. Okay. And he wants it to be team taught. So he asked me, you know, do you want to be in on this? Um, which I thought was kind of generous of him in a way because he knows yeah. I'm not yeah. probably in agreement with him on a lot of things. So me and, and Mary, I forgot her last name from journalism, and, uh, and David are this are teaching this course and I didn't really want to do it honestly but I thought if I don't do this right. the things I would say no one else will uh, and they I, it'd be good for students to get a different point of view so I'm trying to figure out now uh, you know just mm -hmm. how exactly to explain to them why Trump won right why there's a lot of people who are not um, under illusions about Trump's right. character personally right. and why they wanted to vote for him. Did, have you ever heard of, or did you ever read this essay? It's a famous essay in conservative circles called The Flight 93 Election. Have you ever come across that? I don't know if Okay, I have. you got to read this. Okay. Um, it's in the Claremont Review of Books. Okay. Um, the, the guy who wrote it is a guy named Michael Anton who wound up um, working in the Trump White House for a little while. Okay, that's but he wrote it under a pseudonym. Uh, he wrote it under Publius Decius Muse, uh, was, the, was the pseudonym. But anyway, I mean, the, the short summary of the Flight 93 election, it was written before the election, was um, the election's life, Flight 93. You charge the cockpit okay. before you die. Right. You know, and maybe you die anyway. Right. But the situation Taking is action. hopeless enough, yep. neither party's establishment is capable of writing the course of the country, so right. you're rolling the dice with, with, and uh, um, I, I don't agree with every word of it. There are things he's he's very harsh on what he calls conservatism Inc. I think uh, much too harsh on that part of it, um, and I'm not sure the situation in the country was exactly that dire, but I'm not sure it wasn't either. <laughs> And, and it's, it's really an interesting essay. Well, and I, I think that, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt, you should, uh, you should read the Claremont Review of Books, okay. um, that's, it, which is largely... Is that, what you, is that what you... I had a I've, short subscription to for a while? Oh, maybe I did. You, yeah. would, you would have been one of the few people I know around here yeah. who, would have, who would really enjoy it, because it's mostly, it's political history, right. but written at a very yep. high level. I think you know, like bi-monthly or something like that? Or yeah, quarterly. Quarterly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think we had a... Yeah, a yeah. anyway, um, yeah, I write in the CRV every once in a while, but uh, mainly just reviewing books, but, um, but that's where that was. And... Uh, um, so anyway, yeah, I'm trying to figure out the figure out what to say right. about the Trump phenomenon when I'm not in an environment where I can just 
blow off steam. <laughs> but I didn't, you know, I didn't vote for Trump, and, and so right. And I, I'm of the mind too that it wasn't necessarily. It was. It was. I think it was people voting against Hillary Clinton more so than yeah. people voting for Donald Trump. Yeah, I think it was the worst of two evils. I. I think that's right, and I, I, that that would have been. I mean, I, I, I had this conversation with one of my former students, who's also very conservative, who's working out in Washington now, and she was kind of pressing me, saying, "Okay, but if you had to choose, right? You know, but if you had to choose." I said, well, I'd, I'd vote for him. Yeah. yeah. She said I would probably vote for Hillary, which surprised me because she's very conservative. Um, but I thought that Hillary's an absolute disaster. I mean, in, in her own, in her own yeah. different way, she's personally no better suited to the White House than he is. Right. I, you know, and even in terms of, um, like, I can see myself voting. I think I'm a character voter more so than yeah. I, I, I yeah. realize that as I get older, that I would have an easier time voting for Bernie Sanders uh, yeah. because he's somebody yeah. who actually legitimately, at least as far as I know, Joe, Joe Q. Public knows, I feel like he, I think his policies are probably more radical than anybody's, right? Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah. I also feel like he uh, has... Even though he's uh, he's a millionaire many times over, right? And, and, and a right. Socialist uh, as well, right? And, yeah, and but, I, I guess but, yeah. I, sorry, may, and maybe at the time I think I would have been more likely yeah. to vote for him. Well, those are the things that people used to say about Paul Wellstone, that, right? You know, look, yeah, he's, very good. He's sincere, right? At least, uh, even if even if he's wrong-headed, uh, um, or I, I I I have respect for the office, right? Um, yeah, and so that yeah. was one of the things that I admired about. Barack Obama is he had respect for the office, um, independent of his politics. At the end of the day, he was presidential in his role. Yeah, Obama carried himself with a certain dignity most of the time, and right. it's sorely lacking, of course, in, right. uh, in, in Trump. Um, but I don't know. I, I part of the appeal. It, I, it, it's it, it partly is lesser of evils, but. Um, people, if it's only that, then Trump's support would melt away more quickly. True. And, True. And, I, yeah. and there are a lot of people who are kind of diehard Trumpians now. Mm -hmm. And part of it is that they just think he's got balls. I mean, yeah. they, they, they think that Trump will say things, first of all, about Hillary, and then second of all, about just the political establishment more generally that no one else will say. Right. And a lot of times they're true, even though right. he says them bluntly and you know, indecorously. Well, and yeah, for example, uh, his, or his initial comments about, you know, from his last, his last tour, um, chastising the Germans for the gas pipeline yeah. that was coming in. At yeah. first I'm like, that's ridiculous. What is he talking about? He's an yeah. idiot. Yeah. And then I read and I looked a little more into it and I was like, yeah, that's kind of a bad deal. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. that's uh, yeah. that's gonna undermine some, some like a lot of security between, like. Yeah. Uh, but at first, but but first response and and mass media response is is yeah. just to yeah. uh, you know to ridicule it as as it is. But yeah. but there are the, the nuggets within the uh, insanity that comes out that you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's I find it harder. This would really get me in trouble. <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't changed my mind about the idea that you know, Trump is a low character, right? You know, I mean, what the the 
the Stormy Daniels thing is bad enough yeah. just because of who she is. But when that happened, you know, yeah. is that's that's just abominable that he would do such a thing. Right. Um, but on the other hand, I find myself more wanting to defend him because of what his enemies are doing. Right. You know, ever since he got elected and really before. And and um, and you know, I mean the reason I didn't vote for him was a he's a low character b mm -hmm. he's I thought intellectually lazy he didn't study he didn't yeah. take it nor does he I, I think that that is yeah. that he needs to learn right c I doubted he was really conservative I was sure you know I thought he was going to be a guy who wants to make a right. deal and brag about it with whoever. Right. And he, he, as a president, he's been much more conservative True. than I really thought he was going to be. Yep. And so I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised so far. Yeah, by, it's by almost like he does so much via, or he's done at least thus far so much via executive order, yeah. which is yeah. a little totalitarian for me. Yeah. But uh, yeah. um, at the same time, oh, he's yeah. at least, like you said, yeah, more conservative. Yeah, I, I would than prefer, yeah, the Constitution. I mean, I don't think. I, one of the big reasons to me for being a conservative is to is to be um, a, to, tr to try to feel a kind of fidelity for the Constitution, right. to try to take seriously what that document really means. Right. And Trump isn't your guy for that. Right. You know, he's got no interest in it. He's got no learning in it. He's the guy who right. just kind of admires you get things done however you get them done. Um, but uh, but. Effectively, he's, you know, his influence on the Supreme Court will be to advance principles of constitutionalism right. better than anyone else in recent memory. Yeah, really, Definitely. even including Reagan. So well, and part of that is, is actually the dumb luck of the draw at this point. Yeah, but uh, yeah. also, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's, well, so that's good. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, with that, I want to thank go. Pete Myers. Uh, <laughs> Pete, um, for all of those you who want to find your book, it's probably on Amazon. Is it on oh, Amazon? Oh, it is. Yeah. And what's yeah, the name of your? It could cost or do you have two or one? Either two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think the the lockbook um, maybe is out of print by now. Okay. It's not like there were repeated printings of <laughs> that book. <laughs> they stopped so at thirty-two printings. Might have to pay uh, more than you should for that book. Uh, the Douglas book you can still get right. from me. Yeah. And, and they can contact you directly if they want to read your dissertation. No, right? no, I, I'm, I'm unavailable by, uh, by yeah, well, right, I, yeah, I, I could make a copy of the dissertation but nobody in the right mind would want to read that. Uh, well, uh, whatever is worthwhile in a dissertation is, is the first, is in the first book. All right, well, thank you so much for being with us today. And next week, next week, Kurt Redant on meat. Right. And then, we'll, uh, We'll see what happens next. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dialogue on Dialogue Podcast. Well, it's no surprise you see that you've heard.